You're listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. Hello, this is Heidi Marble. I am sparkling inside with excitement to share this episode with adoptee and Reverend Lance from New Zealand. Lance asked that we not speak his last name. When he reached out to me via our submissions page on our website, I was immediately drawn in, not only because he was an adoptee and a reverend, but because he has a podcast called Two Lucky Bastards. I was hooked. I had to know who this human being was with such a great uh, sense of humor. Come to find out, the reason behind that name actually is very significant, and yes, you will learn about that as you listen to the episode. More importantly than the name of the podcast is the scope of Lance's heart, the dynamics of his story, what he has to say to adopted people, and it's absolutely moving on so many levels. Lance shares so much of his life and his conviction and his belief that there is there is hope. And so we do pray, we do speak about religion inside of this episode. If that's not your vibe, that's no problem. <laughs> you can turn it off, you can fast forward it. But as far as I'm concerned, we need as many prayers and good vibes as we can get in adoptee land. So, you know, there's my two cents. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Marvel. I am so overjoyed to welcome Reverend Lance from New Zealand to the podcast Pulled by the Root today. Lance reached out to me. We have a mutual admiration of Anne Heffron, and we started this really great email thread back and forth. His story is very compelling. He has an incredible podcast called Two Lucky Bastards, which absolutely cracks me up because he's a reverend. I'm like, this, I have to know this man. <laughs> so welcome, Lance. It's so it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Lance. Well, before we dig into your story, I had read in our correspondence where you had said, if you ever want a voice from very far at the bottom of the world, let me know. And you had a word for it. Can you explain that? I think I think the word was the antipode. That basically means the, the bottom of the world, which is where we live, uh, in this little is- isolated part uh, of the Pacific where we have very little COVID going on. So it's a great uh, and beautiful country. But um, yeah, we, we always feel like we're the bottom of the world. Oh, well, I am so excited that our podcast has reached the bottom of the world. Well, Lance, it would be really great for people to, I think we should just start at the beginning. Maybe tell us about your adoption story, what it was like growing up. Um, just if you can give us whatever you'd like to share. Yeah, well, um, I, did not, I didn't know I was adopted until I was about seven years of age. So uh, that's, that's a few years ago now. Um, I, I knew I had this incredible sense uh, as, a, as a young child, you know, five and six, uh, you know, knowing that there was something not quite right. I couldn't put my finger on what it was in my life and in the family that just felt off. Uh, I'm not saying that my parents didn't love me. My parents were incredibly loving. Uh, they, I had a great upbringing. Um, but there was, there was clearly something going on in the family that was there but was never spoken about. And, and I, I think really, you know, in reflection on it um, all these years later, 
mum and dad never resolved their own inability to have their own children. And so there was, you know, there was a, a real tension in the relationship, uh, which, which was always there, never quite, it never came out in, the, in any sort of ways, but there was always this real sense there was a, something between mum and dad, uh, you know, a real sort of gap there. And, and so I, I knew there was some tension going on, not sure what. And um, I've got an older brother. He was adopted uh, three years before I, I was adopted. My parents had been married for about eight or 10 years when they adopted him. Uh, and they were told at the time that they were, would not be able to adopt any other children, not because they weren't suitable, but because you know this was uh, the late 60s going into the 70s and the baby boom or the scoop era was sort of coming to an end, not that we knew that. So they were told, you know, you know you've, got, you've adopted one child, you, you probably aren't going to adopt another. Um, and so I was a bit of a surprise to everybody uh, for a number of reasons when they adopted me. Uh, and so I, I came into this family with these, you know, sort of quite unusual dynamics going on as a family. And uh, it wasn't until I was about seven years old where um, one day my brother and I were in the in the paddocks behind uh, because we lived by farmland. And uh, he was always a bully. You know, he was always beating on me, um, you know, always having a go at me. And this particular day, he, he'd set up a, a trap uh, uh, a rope noose and my feet went into it and he pulled the rope and I got I was upside down and my head was swinging backwards and forwards in a cow pat uh, and so there was cow manure you know all over my hair and and I was in tears you know and then I you know I said so he let me go and of course landed in the cow pat uh, which made it real mess and I was just uh, bereft and so I said to my brother you know tears coming down my face I'm I'm going to go home and tell mum on you and as quick as a flash, she said, well, she's not your mother. You were adopted. And, of course, I, I had no idea, you know, seven years of age. I didn't know what adopted meant uh, at all. And uh, so I just ran home. And uh, the, the next bit of the story, you know, is my recollection. And I'm going to say that quite as a caveat. This is my recollection of what happened next. Whether this actually happened, I don't know. But this is my seven-year-old memory. So I, I ran home, jumped over the back fence, went to the back door, covered in cow manure, uh, feeling horrible and uh, crying. And my mother comes out and down the stairs and sees me and goes to give me a hug, asking what's gone wrong. And I said, my brother has, you know, has done this and he told me I was adopted. Now, what happened next, again, is my recollection, but I, backhand slap across the face is what I remember. Uh, and I think if if it's a true memory, because, you know, you know, it's clouded, I don't think that that was my mother angry at me, but I think that was her response to this word that was never supposed to be spoken because she was told, you know, you don't talk about these things. You treat these children as if they're your own. So so I was shocked. Uh, and then I, I remember being picked up and what I felt was thrown into the wash house uh, in tears. Now I'm confused. You know, this person who is my mother has hit me. I don't know what I've done wrong. You know, my brother has done this horrible thing and I'm sitting here confused. Then I heard my brother come home, uh, which seemed like forever later. You know, it was probably only a few minutes later. And then he got the hiding of his life. Uh, and uh, I heard that very clearly through the, the, the wash house door. And then he was put into another room. And again, what seemed to me like hours later, but was probably wasn't, 
My mother came and got me and took me into the bathroom and cleaned me up, didn't say a word to me as far as I can remember, and then put me in my bedroom and said, we will never speak of this ever again. So at that seven years of age, uh, I got a very clear impression. This is not something you talk about in the family. And uh, we never did. Uh, you know, really, it was it was nothing that we really ever talked about. You know, I didn't know what adoption meant. I must have done some exploration because, you know, it became something in my life that I was very, very aware of. No internet in those days. We're talking the 1970s, you know, you know no internet. Uh, books were hard to get by, um, get. And, you know, if I went to the library, I was taken by my mother. So you couldn't really get a book out that she would be aware of. So, uh, you know, it was it was something that was there, but we didn't speak about. If I went to a doctor's appointment, mum came into the doctor's appointment with me. Uh, and if they ever asked, is there a family history of this? My mother would just say no. Uh, you know, would never say anything along the lines of what we don't know, um, because that was never spoken about. Now, you know, if I fast forward to uh, two, three years ago, I buried one of my cousins because, you know, I'm a, I'm a minister and so I'm the family priest. And I, I buried one of my cousins. Growing up, there were seven cousins. So my brother and I and five others, you know, there was se the seven cousins. Of the four siblings that my, my, my mother's had three siblings, I should say, there was my oldest uh, auntie. She had no, they had no children. They were not able to have children. We did not know that. She was the crazy cat lady. I love I loved my auntie with a, with a passion, but she was the crazy cat lady. And then my second auntie, she had three biological children of her own, uh, of their own, uh, did not know that they were biological children or not biological children. And then my uncle, the third sibling, uh, he had two children, which I assumed were biological children. And then there was my brother and I. So growing up, we never talked about adoption. We turned up a family events because it was a close family and I always felt like there was something quite wrong. I didn't quite fit in, couldn't put my finger on it, but I always felt like, you know, I was the outsider. Well, two years ago when I buried my cousin, uh, her brother said to me, you did know that we were adopted, didn't you? And I went, what? I, I, excuse me, I said. Yeah, my, he said, you know, my sister and I, we were both adopted. We weren't biological children. I said, did you know that my brother and I were adopted? No way, he says. So of the seven cousins, four were adopted. And it was because oh my we, lived, gosh. We, we lived in that time where, you know, close stranger adoption, we keep it secret, we don't talk about these things. And so, you know, everyone carried on as if, you know, these children were their biological children. And and I have to say, apart from that, that really bad incident when when I first raised the issue, you know, I had a loving, a loving family. I was, you know, I was treated incredibly well. Um, mum and dad are still mum and dad to me. I love them with a passion because they have given me so much in my life. But there was this secret that no one ever spoke about, and it was it was there, but it wasn't quite there. In 1985, um, after a lot of uh, pressure in our country, the government of New Zealand uh, introduced a piece of legislation called the Adult Adoption Information Act, which came about as a result of a, a growing pressure from a, a swathe of uh, adoptees saying they want access to their original birth records. So the Adult Adoption Information Act was, was introduced, but you know, like all legislation, it, it was the result of compromise. So it, it, it went so far, but not far enough. And one of the key um, uh, things that allowed that legislation to go through was what they called the veto element, which meant that anyone 
in the adoption triad, if they chose to, could put a veto on the record. So I, as adopted person, would put veto on my records if I didn't want my birth parents to search for me. Similarly, they could put a veto on the birth records. I don't think that the adopting parents have that right. So in 1985, my mother came to me and said, here's the forms. I want you to sign these forms and put a veto on your birth record. This will protect you. And this is, as far as I'm aware, this is the only time I ever lied to my mother because I couldn't do it. You know, there was part of me that said somewhere out there is someone who is part of my story. And if I put a veto on that record, they will never have a chance to talk to me and I may never have a chance to talk to them. So I, I said to my mother, I've signed the paper. I put it into the envelope. We posted off a blank form back to the government uh, and the veto was never placed on my record. So um yeah, eventually I started the search and found my birth parents. Yeah. Oh gosh. Lance, what a story. You have to keep going. <laughs> Let me take a deep breath. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Like you yeah. came so close to to not being able to to search. So so tell us what you found and what that was like and how you rode the fence of that lie because clearly your adoptive family is unaware of this. So let us know how all this plays out. So, so I, I was a teacher before I went into ministry. Uh, and um, when I finished my teaching uh, career, uh, sorry, my teaching training uh, and my uh, undergraduate degree, um, I was doing a bachelor of education degree. And as part of that, I did human development. Uh, well, in completing that degree postgraduate, once I left teachers college, um, I decided to do an advanced human development paper. And the, the, the advanced human development paper, one of the assignments was look at a trauma that occurs in a child's life. And it, quite clearly it said, do not choose anything that is a trauma that you've experienced. You need to look at this objectively. So I looked at the list and it had, you know, child sexual abuse and it had domestic violence, you know, and it had all these sort of things and it had adoption. And I thought, well, I'll talk about adoption. You know, I know I'm adopted, but it really isn't an issue for me. <laughs> so I started unpacking what adoption was and I went to the library and I found uh, this amazing book by a, um, a feminist called uh, Death by Adoption, which was first the first real uh, adoption literature here in, in New Zealand. And it talked from the perspective of a adopting mother uh, who didn't adopt her children out, but was was forced, you know, the force was coming from the government to make that happen. And she decided not to, and then trying to live her life uh, in, in, a, in an environment in a day when there was no social welfare supports, uh, you know, there was no um, uh, grants from the government. So it, living as a solo mother with two children was really hard for her. So she wrote this book, Death by Adoption, and it, and I, it undid me. It absolutely undid me. I became a total mess. I had a breakdown um, and I just could not function because it hit home the impacts of what this experience had had for my life. So I, I went and talked to my mum and dad. We weren't living, uh, I was married at the time. We had our, um, some children of our own, um, at least two of our own children. Um, we eventually got had two more, so um, four biological children. I went and visited mum and dad and I said, I, I think I need to do some work around this. And mum said something to me, which which I know was the most beautiful thing she could say to me, but you, you, I'll tell you what she said and then you, you see how it hits you and you might understand how it hit me. She said to me, Lance, 
we desperately wanted children of our own and we tried and we tried and we tried and God didn't give us any children. So we got you. Now, I, I, was, I know what she was meaning. She was saying, what a beautiful gift you were. What I heard was, we wanted something, we couldn't get it, so you're second best. Now, I've never, I've never had a conversation with my mum about that since uh, because I just, I don't want to hurt her by, by her thinking that, you know, something that she said in love actually cut really deep. But it really cut deep and I felt like, you know, I already feel a totally worthless individual. You know, I feel like my whole life I've had to prove myself over and over again. For goodness sake, I've got seven degrees from universities uh, and I'm now starting a PhD. When will I ever believe that I'm worthy enough? So anyway, I decided to go and do the search and uh, the, the, the 1985 Act had obviously passed and I was able to go and apply. And what a demeaning process, I have to say. You had to apply to the Social Welfare Department, which is the national um, organisation. So because if, if you think New Zealand, the best way to describe it is we are the smallest state of America. You know, it's just we're just one little tiny, one tiny state. Uh, that's the size. We are five million people. And so there's one one agency across the country that deals with with adoptions, even though there were church organisations, they all had to be linked in through the social welfare department. So you had to apply you had to fill in a form and say, I would like to apply for my original birth certificate. And uh, then when it arrives or when the, the social workers get it, you then have to go in for an interview. And so you, you, you rock up, you get a telephone call or a letter saying, we've, we've now have your original birth certificate. Uh, you can come uh, and uh, we will decide whether we're going to give it to you. So you have to turn up and you've got, you come into this room and there's two social workers there and they say, what is, what is the reason that you want this? What is the purpose behind this? Oh, and, you know, I said, well, I, I want to know who I am. Are you going to uh, threaten the person who's named on here? Are you going to try and get money from them? Are you trying to take some legal action? It was just so painful. Uh, and eventually they realized, no, I, I'm clearly not a nut job. And so they gave me this uh, original birth certificate. Uh, and I had finally this piece of paper that listed uh, an actual birth-related person. My birth mother was, was listed on there. So uh, I then went to the, the local library, went through the microfiche of the births, deaths, and marriages, and <laughs> tracked her down, uh, found out that she'd, she'd married, uh, got her, her you know, married name and her husband's married name, then searched through the electoral rolls and the telephone books, and within about three hours, I had a telephone number. So, you know, this is very different to, to how I know it is for many adopted people in, in America. You know, it, it, was, it was quite, quite remarkably easy. And so that evening, I had a little script that the social welfare workers had given to me to say, this is what you're supposed to say. Yeah. So I rung this number and it was a really bad line, a really bad crackly line. And, uh, and this person came on this voice and I, I was choking up already. And, and so I read the script. Hi there, my name is Lance, and I was born on the 24th of May, 1967. And I'm wondering, I'm trying to find uh, my birth mother. I'm wondering, you know, would you be able to help me on that search? So that was the script. And this voice at the other end of the line said, this is a really bad line. We're having the line fixed tomorrow. Can you call me back tomorrow? Oh, Lance, no. no. So I said, sure, what time could I ring back? And she told me, and that was the end of the call. And I was just, I was just gutted thinking, oh, you know, she's fobbed me off. She doesn't want to have anything to do with me. 
this is this is the end uh, for me. And so it was a really painful 24 hours. And, you know, I, my heart was in my chest and I just felt nauseous the whole time. So the next day I rang at the time appointed and this person came on, immediately answered the phone. She was obviously sitting by the phone and she said, yep, I'm your mum. And I've thought about you every single day since you were adopted. And I've waited for this day to come that you would ring me. So um, that was a really beautiful thing. And that was this, that was 25 years ago this year. So, um, yeah. Sorry. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find some myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, oh, but it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I'm buckling um, in. Yeah, so, so eventually I went and met my birth mother, and she is the most gracious person in the world, uh, just an amazing person. So initially, uh, my wife and our children, two of our children that were born at that stage, we went on the journey and we met in a McDonald's uh, because uh, we, you know, that was a convenient place to meet so the kids could play in the playground and we could, we could chat. It, it, it transpired that my birth mother was... 13 years old when I was conceived uh, and my birth father was 14 and during that first telephone conversation she asked me if I wanted to know the name of my birth father I said look you know this is me being the minister because I was a minister at that stage saying <laughs> look when it's right for you to tell me you will bad mistake because it <laughs> took another 10, uh, 10 years later before, oh, before no. she was ready uh, anywho so we have this conversation, we meet, uh, and I've, I discover that she um, was, as I said, 13 when I was um, conceived, uh, 14 when I was born. She was, she was the um, only child, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say that, I'll, let me recap. She was the eldest child of two um, to a good Presbyterian couple, uh, a good faith-believing uh, family that had their own biological child and then couldn't have any more children, so they adopted a son. So they had my mother and they had a son. And she did not know that she was pregnant. So uh, in New Zealand, our academic year, our school year is a calendar year. So school starts in January, which is the end of our summer, and finishes in December just before Christmas. So so at Christmas time, at the end of the school year, they left where they were living, uh, Auckland, the, the, uh, the major city in New Zealand, and they moved to a little rural uh, community uh, in the Bay of Plenty called a little town called Caddy Caddy, uh, and uh, that's where they were living. So she left Auckland pregnant already, not knowing that she was about four or five months pregnant, four months pregnant. They moved down country, and she you know, enrolls in a new school, and during the school holidays, the story goes that she was horse riding uh, and she fell off the horse and had stomach pains. And the pains did not go away. So her parents rushed her to the local doctor uh, in their little small town. And the doctor said, your daughter's in labor. And that was the first, the first uh, news that she had that she was pregnant and that her parents had that any idea that she was pregnant. So the, the closest hospital is about a 20-minute drive, which is to a town called Tauranga, uh, a beautiful city on the, on, the, uh, on the Bay of Plenty. They chose to drive one hour 40 to the next city, to a place called Rotorua, where I was eventually born, because 
they needed to hide the shame and stigma of what their daughter had done. So I was born an hour 40 away in this little little community called Rotorua, uh, which is where eventually I was adopted by my parents and where I was raised and grew up. So uh, in those days, you know, this is the 1960s, um, you know, this unwanted child, uh, her parents did not want her to have this child and she was not in the place to be able to raise me as her child. So I was delivered and she was not allowed to touch me or hold me. I was immediately taken away to another part of the hospital. She remained in the hospital for about two or three weeks. Uh, uh, I think it was about two weeks before her parents took her home. During that time, they forced her to sign the adoption papers. Uh, I was given a name by my by my grandparents, my birth grandparents, uh, that she did not choose and did not know that I had been given. And I think it was about 10 days after I was born, she made a fuss and the nurses brought this little bundle to the, the, the door the, of the, her room. And that was the only view she had of me uh, from that day till when we met, you know, uh, 30 something years later. Her parents picked her up from the hospital and took her home in the car, one hour 40 ride back to their little community. They did not speak to her one minute of that entire journey all the way home. Not one word was spoken, a silent car ride home. When they got home and they drove in the driveway, she saw on the front doorstep a, a suitcase and her parents went in the front door, slammed the door in her face and left her on the doorstep with a suitcase. And a few moments later, an auntie came and picked her up and took her home and raised her uh, until she got married. Her, her parents, my birth grandparents, did not speak to her from that day again until they died. They, they never reconciled. And, and I look at that and go, you know, that's, I just can't understand that from a Christian couple or people who believe that they are people of faith. But it was in, a, in an era where Adoption was a secret and it was shameful and it was something that you you hid away when your child um, you know got pregnant um, outside of marriage. So she was raised by um, an auntie and eventually got married uh, to a beautiful man, a lovely man um, who uh, is uh, uh, was was her husband until he died ten years after we um, uh, were in reunion. And that's when she eventually told me, she was prepared to tell me who my birth father was because um, she felt she could do that once, once her husband had died. I met, um, I met her husband uh, and my half-brother and half-sister, and uh, they just enveloped me in their family. Uh, the initial meeting was, was hilarious, though. I went because my, my birth mother, was a, well, they were farmers, uh, and I went and visited on the farm the first time I was invited home. Uh, and uh, Andrea, my wife, and our kids were inside with my birth mother, and, and, and Terry, my um, birth mother's husband, said, come look at the farm with me. And I thought, oh, okay. City boy, I don't, I don't understand farm. So we go for this walk, <laughs> and we're out of earshot of the house, and he just turned to me and said, what do you want? Are you after oh. me? And I said, oh, my goodness. I said, no, I, I'm just trying to find out who I am. I have no interest in any money. I just want to know who I am. So he says, okay, I'll accept that. And we never spoke about that again from that day on. We just became good friends. He just wanted to make sure I wasn't out for you know, bad, bad ends, you know. So, uh, yeah, so we've been in a reunion for about 25 years. Ten years after we were in a reunion, um, when Terry died, um, my birth mother was prepared to give me my birth father's name. 
and I went through the same process of searching and found that he was very a very successful um, uh, person living in Australia. And so through contacts that I was able to use, we, we reached out to him. And at that time, I was serving as a chaplain in, in our army, and I was just about to deploy to Afghanistan. And the letter that I sent to an intermediary, intermediary was delivered to him as I was flying to Afghanistan. And mm -hmm. so this intermediary turned up and said, you know, uh, someone's trying to find their birth father and, and, and he thinks that it might be you. And here was this letter. And of course, this poor man uh, was completely <laughs> shell-shocked. Uh, and of course, you know, there was other people that have a similar name to him, even though it's a very odd surname. And um, he thought, oh, no, it's that other guy. That, you know, he's always in trouble and you know, he's always been chased <laughs> by the law. And he reads this letter and he goes, oh, my goodness, this is me. This is my son. So I'm, I arrive in Afghanistan and I get an email in Afghanistan from this guy, my birth father, saying, I've just received this letter and, and I'm clearly your birth father. Um, we need to talk. So when I got home from Afghanistan, um, he made a trip to New Zealand uh, with his wife uh, and we met again in a cafe. And uh, I thought this was a really good you know, meeting uh, and a good conversation. And we were in reunion for about seven years. Uh, and then he just stopped talking to me and uh, wouldn't answer my calls or emails. And eventually I tracked him down again and he said, it's too complicated having you in my life. So please do not contact me ever again. Now, I've you know done a lot of soul searching about that because you know being rejected as an adoptee, that's pretty bad. But being re-rejected again, you know, that secondary rejection, that really stings. I know that he wants to have a relationship with me, but he's a very wealthy man and he married and his wife has three children that are not his. So I'm his only biological child in the world. And therefore, I think that his wife has sort of said, well, uh, it's either you or uh, me or him, because, you know, she fear, fears that, again, I'm entitled to an inheritance that I don't really want. So he, she's had to make a, a tough call and he's had to make a tough call. And, and I honor him for that. And I, I, I wrote a letter to him um, when he after that telephone call, where he said, don't ever contact me again. And I wrote him a letter, which I've never sent, just saying, I release you. And I, I want you to know that I will continue to pray for you and ask God's blessing upon you every day of your life, that you would just know joy and peace and love because that's what I want for you. Uh, now, I, I've, I've never been able to send that letter, but every day I pray for him and I pray that God would just bless his family and bless his life uh, because that's, that's the only thing I can do because holding anything else is just going to do me in. I need to release him and let him go. Uh, how does that is yeah. uh, it breaks my heart yeah oh lance you're gonna have to take over this interview <laughs> oh my gosh that is such a beautiful response to such a painful situation yeah and, it doesn't make and, it any less painful i have to say um but no. it's it's been the most um i think it's been the best thing i've ever done because i, I don't know what it is like for you in your life, but I, I certainly identify that if if someone I fear someone's going to reject me, I would rather do the rejecting first because I, absolutely I can't, I, can't, I can't cope with that pain. So I'm really guarded no. around around friendships, and I'm very hyper vigilant all the time about 
and relationships that I have. And if someone hurts me, I cut them off. That's it. I don't want anything to do with you, which is just the most destructive response. So I've, 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 in my later years, in my 50s now, I've come to realize this is not one Christian. It's not meaningful or helpful. So I've decided that rather than cutting people off, I'm going to just bless them. Because in, in, in that response, it's a much better way of handling things. Does it make mean it's any easier for me? Absolutely no, it's not. But um, it's just, I think it's a, a much healthier response. Oh, Lance, thank you for sharing all that. There, there's so many things I want to go deeper on. So many adoptees can relate to just the turmoil uh, that, that you discover when you come out of the fog. And I know that term is being pushed back on now, but I still like it because that is kind of what it feels like. You know, the veil has been lifted and and just the rejection and the response to protect ourselves is very real. And I think because you have the unique perspective of your faith and being a reverend and being someone that counsels, can you speak more about that faith? Because clearly that that is helping you manage this very huge heap of pain that you're dealing with. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, I, I've been uh, a person of faith, you know, for most of my life. You know, we, we, I wasn't raised in the church, but, but came to faith very early on in my teenage years. Uh, I, I have to say only it's only recently within the last two or three years that I've actually come to realize that God loves me as a person. I, as a minister, as a person of faith, I could tell you and everybody else in the world how much God loves you and, and how precious you are to God. But like many adoptees, I think, I, I felt like, well, yeah, God loves everybody else, but he sure doesn't love me because if he loved me, you know, I wouldn't have had this crap, you know, start in my life and, and all this negative stuff that, that's resulted from adoption. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things with regard to faith development uh, and it's, it's clear in the literature and in the research that individuals develop their understanding of who God is through the first relationships that they have in their lives. So if their first relationship is a broken relationship, that trauma that occurs when you are separated from the person that you've spent the first nine months of your life connected to, and if that sever takes place and there is a break there, then that impacts negatively on your relationship and your understanding of who God is because God is, uh, I think I think there's a great quote, I think it's Wordsworth who says, mother is the name of God on an infant's lips. You know, because mother is the representation of God. You know, we understand, you know, what God is when, through that real intimate relationship we have with our mother. And so when that first relationship is severed, there is a real trust differential between, okay, do we really trust this God individual and does this God really love us? So, you know, for me, for a long time, you know, I've had this understanding of God loving everybody else, but not loving me. And I've, you know, with my, my PhD, I'm looking at the mental health implications and faith development around adoption. So, you know, what is the impact of adoption on faith development and, and mental health? And when I look at scripture, you know, the, the reality is there's not too many stories in scripture that are adoption stories. And, and the key one that we all jump to, of course, is the story of Moses. You know, Moses, this little baby that was set adrift, you know, by its mother to keep it safe and then was was taken by the Egyptian princess and adopted into the royal family. And it's a great story, you know, in some regards, but it's not representative of my adoption and it's not representative of any close stranger adoption because 
Moses, when he was picked up out of the water, the there was a little girl standing by his his sister, his biological sister, and and the the princess says, "Go and find me a wet nurse." And so the little girl runs home to her mother, which is Moses's mother, who then nurses Moses. So he's getting all of that, you know, those nutrients, and and he's still having that very uh, clear connection with his birth mother. Now it says later in in, in um, Exodus, uh, when Moses had grown up, uh, and, and we don't we don't have any more story about his his, his birth family. But when Moses has grown up. One day he's out and he sees the Hebrew slaves, his people, being abused. And so he, he reacts to that because they are his kinspeople. So again, clearly growing up, he was aware that he was adopted and that these Hebrews were his people. And then when he, uh, you know, he murders the um, Egyptian uh, slave uh, guy, the, slave, the guy beating the slaves, I don't know what you're going to call that, um, the, the overseer, he runs to his people. And so there's a sense in which here is a beautiful story in scripture of adoption, but it's not my story because I don't, don't know, didn't know who my people were. I didn't know I was adopted. It was, it was completely sealed. If we go to the New Testament, and, and this is you know, even more problematic, uh, Paul says in there, what a joy it is to be adopted into the family of God. You were predestined to be adopted into the family of God. And for most people who live in the world who are not adopted, they look at that and go, isn't that beautiful? God wants us to be part of his family. But if, if you're an adopted person like myself, I every Sunday, you know, we open the scriptures in, in the Anglican liturgy and it says, you know, the, the, the song of our adoption, we're adopted into the family of God. And I go, yeah, well, that adoption wasn't so great for me. Uh, and so if, if God, you're wanting me to say this is a joy, it wasn't a joy in my life growing up. Not saying mum and dad didn't love me, but boy, it put some things in my life that I wish weren't there. You know, there's some insecurities and yeah. some, you know, some feelings that I'm not worthy and not good enough and constantly feeling like God approves the world that I actually have worth. So I don't, I don't really identify with this God. Well, Paul was putting that in scripture because he was living in a Roman world. And in the Roman world, if you were born to a family, a, a Roman family, that meant diddly squat. It meant nothing because the father, the uh, paterna familiar, he had the right to either lift that child up and receive it into the family or to discard it. And so birth did not mean anything. In the Roman world, adoption meant you had rights and access and inheritance. So a child born of a mum and dad would be adopted by the father legal process to say you are now part of the inheritance. And so Paul was saying in his writing, this is the relationship God has with us. He wants to adopt you freely and willingly into the family of God where you have all the rights and inheritance of a child of God. So for us as adoptees, we look at the New Testament and you know most new people look at the New Testament and go, isn't this fantastic? It, again, has no relation to the experience that we've had. Uh, it's a very different experience to what we know. And so as we embrace that, we have to reconcile, well, if my lived experience was this, but my faith says this, what does that do for me? And that's, that's the piece of work that I'm about to um, embark on. Oh, Lance, thank you so much for sharing that. I think, I think what is so exciting, too, is being able to talk about faith and to challenge it. And yep. to push back and to look deeper. 
because I've always wanted a 1-800 number to God. <laughs> like, <laughs> excuse me, why is this happening? Oh, you know, being absolutely. able to have. So, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I'm excited to see what your research ends up, you know, discovering through this process. We definitely have to circle back to that once you have your PhD and all the, and all the results. So Lance, let's talk to a little bit. I know that we're starting to get down to where we need to wrap things up in a few minutes. I want to know how you came to a podcast uh, to become a podcast host <laughs> with the name Two Lucky Bastards. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just got to hear this story. <laughs> well, well, I, I mean, um, I, I'm an Anglican priest. Uh, so that's the Episcopal Church that you would understand in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I know that the Episcopal Church in the United States is, is fairly liberal. Um, in, in New Zealand, you know, we have a more conservative sort of, sort of leaning in, in the Anglican Church. However, um, one of the things that we have grappled with as a church is the whole place of LGBT community or LGBTQ+, whatever it is these days, um, around, you know, how, how, how people um, of uh, same-sex attraction can feel welcome to the church. And so, you know, while while I'm straight, I'm, I'm cisgendered. I think that's what the, the terminology is. The the I've really looked at the whole rise of um, the the gay liberation movement and words that were uh, derogatory have now become words of empowerment within that community. So queer, which was a, a, a term of derision, is now a term of empowerment. And, and when I grew up, bastard was uh, the slang term for an illeg illegitimate child. So, you know, if you if anyone at school knew that you were adopted, they would go, oh, you're a bastard. And it became a real uh, a real hurt, you know, and something that I carried quite heavily. So there's a, I've got a great friend here in New Zealand who is a person of faith uh, as well, but a, a different end of the spectrum to me. And uh, we, we talk about adoption all the time because we feel isolated. There's, there's so few people talking about it and there's not really much going on. And uh, she just emailed me one day and said, oh, this book's just been uh, released called Tree of Strangers by a, a local person here that tells her story of adoption. And I think we should read it. And I said, let's read it together and let's have a podcast about it. Uh, and so that's where the podcast came from. Now, the podcast it does not predicate that someone's read the book. We use it as a springboard to talk about all things adoption. So for, from my perspective, you know, I want to be a lucky bastard. I, I want to say I'm reclaiming this word. It's not a word of derision anymore. It's not a word of shame. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I can never be unadopted. But I want to be empowered. Now, this is, this is going to sound a bit strange because there's a few really great podcasts in the United States uh, that that. In the early days, I, I started listening to way before you started yours, way before I started mine. And one of them, um, which I, I don't really want to name because I don't want to shame, uh, but it's a, it was the first podcast I discovered around adoption and I started listening to it. But all the voices were angry. You know, I'm an angry adoptee and I'm angry because of what the world has done to me. And, you know, if, if you are happy with your birth, uh, with your adopting family, then you're clearly in the fog and you need to come out of the fog. And you uh, only when you come out of the fog and, and realize how angry you need to be, can you be a fully, fully self-actualized adopted person? And I go, I don't want to live there. I don't want to be an angry person all my life. 
I want to actually look at my adoptive experience and say, you know, this was not something I chose, but it's something I'm living with. So how can I live with this empowered rather than living with this as a badge of shame or as something that holds me down? So for me, coming out of the fog was saying, you know what? I am adopted. That's something that was not a choice of mine, but how I choose to live with it, that's the empowerment that I have. And so my whole podcast is around how we can empower people to say, you didn't choose this, but you can choose how you live with it. Bravo, Lance. So, so well said. Is there anything else, any advice that you can can give to adoptees that are hurting, that feel that maybe they can't speak their truth, that are struggling with reunion, you know, from a pastoral sense yeah. and an adopted person? I think we're all reaching for some sort of nourishment in this world, yeah. you know, to, to get us through. The reality is, and, and I know that your your world, and, and as far as the United States and the legislature and the processes that have there are very different to ours. I have to say, irrespective of where you live in the world, reunion has a really low percent chance of being successful. That That's not because of any anything you know that is a negative in a sense but you can't cut something off a person from your life and then 40 years later expect to come back together with as if that 40 year gap had never occurred as as one great writer has said you cannot have adoption without loss loss is at the heart of every adoptive process uh you know the the adopting parents uh, has 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 lost their child, and for whatever reasons, you know, it's not natural or, or normal for someone to want to give a child away. There is some external pressure, whether that be the person is 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 in dire straits that they can't afford to raise this child, or whatever. Um, so there is this incredible loss and pain, and often shame associated with that during the close stranger adoption years. So people carry that pain with them. The adopted person carries the loss and shame that they carry as an adopted person. And then they're often adopted into a family who is struggling with their own losses around infertility and the ability to grow a family naturally. Or, um, you know, through the great Christian ethos, oh, we're going to adopt this poor child, you know, to give it a life. And, and then there's that safety mentality. So there's all this sort of stuff going on. We desperately want to reconnect with who we are. That's, that's a natural part of life. And we just have to go gently because, you know, we, we rush at this thinking it's going to be this, the, the silver bullet. And as I said, with my birth father, it's a prime example. I had done 25 years of processing around this whole experience of adoption. And when I wrote that letter, it was 25 years of me doing the mental processing around it. He received that letter with no warning. And of course, that made his life unravel. And so when I turned up to meet him, he was still trying to make sense of all of this for himself because he didn't know he'd fathered a child. And so there was all the stuff going on at different levels and we were missing and matching all over the place. Really, I think, you know, adoptees need to be a lot more forgiving on themselves and a lot more gentle on themselves and gentle on those that they're engaging with because some, some reunions don't work and we can carry an incredible bitterness towards that or we can let it go. I think one of the, the key things I would say to any adopted person listening who says, you know, uh, 
What do I do? How can I journey through this? Find someone you trust that you can talk to. Uh, you can always email me. Uh, you know, go to the Two Lucky um, Bastards Weebly page. Go to our website, uh, the web page there. And send me an email, and I will get back to you. I will always try and get back to you as quickly as I possibly can. I will always engage because we need to to love each other and be there for each other because most of the rest of the world doesn't understand the pain we're experiencing. Lance, that's so perfect. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. It would mean so much to me personally, if you could end this by saying a prayer for for adoptees, if you would feel so inclined. I just think that would be um, really beautiful. I'd love to do that. Let's pray. Gracious, Gracious God, your word says that you are the father to the fatherless that you uh, welcome the orphans. And too often uh, we are so hard on ourselves because we feel that part of our story as adopted people is that we weren't nothing, were worth nothing, that we were rejected. We were rejected by you and by the world. But that simply isn't true. You didn't choose this for us because that's not the way of who you are as God. This is the way of the world. And so help us as adopted people to be more gracious to ourselves, to be more loving to ourselves, and to be more gracious and forgiving of those around us, because we're all trying to make our way in this world. And with your strength and guidance, we can. We can only do it if we do it in love. Amen. Lance, this was amazing. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. It's been my absolute joy and pleasure.